You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. I'm Kevin Power. Welcome to Season 2 of Sascapes. It's great to be back, and I can't wait to share more of your stories, Saskatchewan. Remember, if you'd like Sascapes to come to your community, visit www.iheartculture.ca. Click on the Community Engagement Animateur link and send me an email. You can also check out the great work being done by the other animateurs. You can listen to the first 48 episodes of the podcast for free from the iTunes Store and Stitcher Radio, or stream them on the iHeartCulture.ca website. And while you're at the iTunes Store, we always like to hear from you, so feel free to write a review. Later on this month, I'll have a very exciting announcement which is going to make accessing the podcast even easier. Now, I can't think of a better way to kick off the new season than with today's guest. Her accomplishments up to this point are inspirational, to say the least, and this episode will cover many of the stages of her very full life. It's no exaggeration to say that she has touched the lives and hearts of so many in the province. Okay, enough suspense. This is Saskatchewan's own Linda Haverstock. Beside me sits one of my most favorite people on the planet, a very good friend of mine, and quite possibly one of the most influential people, not only in Saskatchewan, but in Canada. Linda Haverstock. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So, full disclosure, we're pals. We are indeed. We go back a long way. A long, long way. 1988, I remember. That's right. How did we meet? Well, we met while we were performing in the musical Anything Goes. That's right. You were my Reno Sweeney. And I was your Billy Crocker. Billy Crockett. Yeah. And um, it was a fabulous time. Uh, that was the year before I entered public life. And um, everything changed thereafter. I was never in a position where I could do anything that I loved so much as performing and uh, participating in a community that is very, very special. Um, The wonderful thing about a production is it brings every single person together from every walk of life when it is a community-based enterprise like Summer Players. It is really special. You had sung a great deal. Well, I had, except my life was a rather uh, bizarre unfolding, as we say. Oh, let's let's unwrap it. Let's let's jump backwards, and then we'll get to the musical part of your life. Born in Swift Current, I was. How does a little kid from Swift Current become our nineteenth lieutenant governor? 
and become one of the most influential people in this province and have received all of the accolades that you've received. You know, I really don't know how that happens. I think that experiences in life bring one to a certain point where you're faced with difficult decisions. And I always made decisions that were pretty challenging. Um, I had all sorts of opportunities when I was very young to take uh, voice lessons. Um, my music teacher, Verda Town, was very, very pivotal in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you two examples that so many people in this province would never know, but perhaps they could relate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want this on record, that she was this kind of person. First of all, she was a very frightening woman. <laughs> <laughs> and very good music teacher. <laughs> yes. Um, but she worked for the school system, the public school system, uh, and taught music. And uh, music was a huge thing in Swift Current in both the Catholic system and the public school system. And what she would do is come to all the schools, and there was a music room, uh, and we would rehearse and then, of course, perform, whether it was Christmas time or other special events. And there, all the children did. And then there was a specific choir. Now, I took lessons from her, and then fast forward to being a teenager. It was pretty important for her to be so accepting of me. When I was 15, I became pregnant. Now, a dozen other girls in school went off somewhere, and they came back and they had no babies. I made a decision, and that many years ago, that didn't happen. I was not going to go away, but I wanted my baby. And so what I did was marry, sort of like the Ozarks. That was the only acceptable thing, with the permission of my parents. But what my music teacher did for me is she didn't simply want me at home caring for a baby. I was no longer allowed to be in school. And so what she did was to hire me to sing parts in three parts for the choirs that were going to rehearse in her absence at all of these schools. And that's how she continued to engage me. Mm. What was so interesting is when I went back to finish high school, she still, I mean, I, I felt that not only could I not afford lessons, um, but I really didn't have the time. Um, but she wanted me to come in and sing anyway, and I did. But when I left Swift Current to come to university, this woman, who had never seemed to be an affectionate, warm individual, she said, I've made arrangements for you, Linda, to continue with your singing with Francis James, 
Now, for those who don't know who Frances James was, she was married to Murray Adaskin. Oh, And right. had a marvelous um, reputation throughout Canada for her operatic abilities and that sort of thing. So here I came to Saskatoon and with daughter in tow, go to university and study with Francis James because of my music teacher. It was an astonishing thing. I felt terribly guilty. I couldn't continue after one year. I was so overwhelmed with guilt. Mm. Um, But by then, I was able to join things like Greystone Singers and that sort of thing. So music's been a part of my life that in 1989, when I went into public life, I had to forfeit. Mm. And it was hard. Tell me about your parents. Well, my dad was a wonderful tenor. And uh, it troubled me so uh, to see him, as he aged, not sing. Um, My family was one of these... um, I had uh, two brothers and a sister. And my mother played piano by ear. My dad played the trumpet, although I never really heard him play the trumpet. But on all occasions uh, that were special, they would have many, many people come into our household, and they would roll up the carpet in the living room. My mom would sit down at the piano, and everyone would have a sing-song, and people would dance. And it was just a glorious thing. I learned every single song that I shouldn't have known (laughs) from the time I was very, very young. And, I mean, things that um, I was determined when my daughter was born, she was going to learn, you know, glow, little glowworm. And And, and she did. It was was interesting. Um, You didn't want her to learn 10 cents a dance? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was was quite something. Um, I know that... uh, my mother was very devoted to being at uh, every singing competition I was in, and and it was it was lovely. I mean, it was through that uh, really that I would get scholarships and pay Mrs. Town for mm-hmm. my music lessons. So um, you know, I I think growing up in small town Saskatchewan, it's one. If I fast forward and look at what I wanted to do for the centennial. It was one thing to have the gala, which took tremendous work. But and it got was, tremendous review. Yes, but it was another to say, I want a pin acknowledging people who have contributed to the soul of the province through their work in the arts. And this was not simply to recognize those people who were high profile. You know, the Joni Mitchells of the world. Right. It was... Every music teacher Mm. and every small town who was hauled into the Elks Hall to play God Save the Queen (laughs) and O Canada. And they were the ones that created the lifeblood for all of these young people. Um, So they were the ones that I wanted recognized, the people who would be in an old-time band and bring such joy to the lives of people in their communities. So... It happened, 
It was a way, you know, honestly, we mm-hmm. didn't anticipate that there would be 100,000 people that would be nominated. So I'm really glad that we were able to get more pins. But um, your teacher, I, your music teacher wasn't still alive. By no, she was she? not. No. Oh, what an amazing moment for yeah. her to share. Yes. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people don't know this story about her. And I know that there are people in Swift Current now who remember her, mm-hmm. but there are very, very few people who know of how engaged she was. If I mean, I was one person. Can you imagine what she did for others? Mm-hmm. That is not on record. Mm-hmm. I just want people to know about her. Mm-hmm. When did you transition to Saskatoon? What brought you here? Well, I had to go back and finish high school as an adult mm-hmm. and then and then come here. I came to go to university mm-hmm. and I finished my four-year degree in two because of desperation more than anything. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, it was a challenge, uh, but I figured out how by going all year round. And I had a job uh, at night because my daughter would be asleep and we could have someone care for her then. Um, at a called the Perfect Gift, which was a gift shop, and I just went in and cleaned uh, everything. Uh, as I say, the never-ending job, because as soon as you'd go in one night and clean one section, go to the next section, you come back, and then everything else has to be dusted in a few days. Hmm. Um, it was uh, it was very intense, and that's when I became uh, uh, very physically challenged. Was in my twenties. And uh, now, in retrospect, um, I mean, they felt that I had this acute onset of uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, when in fact, I guess it was late onset of juvenile arthritis. But um, it was very, very debilitating. And um, so my daughter learned what it was like for me to be in a wheelchair, and I was very bitter, um, and my mother taught me important lessons when I went through that period of time. She was a great teacher. Tell me one of the lessons that comes to mind. Well, um, I couldn't fathom not walking for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. and that was posed to me. Um, when I got home from the hospital, where I was for a matter of months, the first thing she did was to hand me a broom in my house, which was shocking to me in a way. I mean, here I was, you know, I I didn't think that I would be doing this as soon as I got home. But it it was more or less a statement that life goes on. And then she said, isn't it great, Linda, to know that there's nothing arm, wrong with your arms. That way you can hold people. Wow. You can hug people. And she just was, you know. A glass half full person. Oh, unbelievably so. Mm-hmm. Um, we were uh, outside of um, the Besborough, between the Besborough and the Sheraton Cavalier. And there was someone going across the road with in a wheelchair that was run by breath 
And she said, you see, you can always look to your left or your right and find people whose circumstances are so much worse than your own and and feel gratitude. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just, uh, she was a wise woman, mm-hmm. really wise. And it resulted in me having, I mean, I had capacity for insight and I learned about myself. It was important. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcasts. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. How how were you able to work when you were in the wheelchair? You couldn't continue that. Oh job. oh, I did. Uh, well, I was going to university. Taught me a lot about what we need to do for people who require care, uh, especially those who, through no circumstances of their own, are faced with great great challenge. And of course, fast forward to today, and for the last twenty years, my daughter's been unable to walk and. And she's exceedingly challenged by the advanced stages of MS. The country still isn't <laughs> cognizant of what they need to do for those people. Right. But um, uh, I even taught university when I had arm canes. I taught university in early years. Um, and it was odd for me to run into people later who would see me and say, I never knew you were that tall. You know, it, it, uh, I, I took a cabulance uh, to the university, which I was charged there and back. And when you have such little income, it was very, very, very difficult. So, you know, I, I feel that I've always had um, the capacity to relate to people because of the challenges that I had the experiences that I've been afforded. And um, and that influenced me a lot about public life. Um, I remember I used to do what others did uh, when, you know how there was this feed the children fund mm-hmm. and you'd stand on the street corner and you'd just collect things. Uh, my parents were always volunteers in everything. Mm-hmm. And so when parents are, their children become uh, volunteers. And I would do that. And I was always struck by how many people with nothing would give. People would walk by where you'd think, oh, this person will be generous. And they'd give nothing. And someone would walk by as a senior who you knew was on a 
fixed income, and they would give something. Similarly, when I was in a wheelchair and would be downtown and need to get access to a building, there would be many people who I thought, oh, well, they'll help me. And But it was the 15-year-old who looked like they hadn't washed their hair in three days or, or their jeans in a month. They would be the ones who would help me. So it gave me a very different perspective mm. um, that we can never judge um, and that it's, um, it can be a revelation to you about who's going to give you the gift of their grace, of their graciousness, you know? Um, and it, it's been so wonderful to know that because I've said to you before, 98% of the people I've known have been good to me. have been very, very kind to me. Mm-hmm. And I've always left my phone number in the phone book, even when I was a clinical psychologist and had numbers of people who were identified as quite dangerous people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always had my name in the phone book through my whole farm stress time when I and one other fellow would go out to farms. He, in fact, I have to tell you about this, this guy because he was just too fantastic. One day I was at home on Elliott Street and this half ton pulls up in front of my house and this slow-talking guy comes to my door and he said, uh, Ma'am, I'm, I'm Doug. And I don't think you should be going out to these farms by yourself. So I'm here to let you know that I'll help you. And I thought, okay. Now, you have to understand in those years when seizures were taking place, tremendous danger. There were three times the number of people who um, committed suicide in the farming population than the general population. It was a time of, you know, um, violence, either perpetrated towards others or themselves, uh, a lot of drug and alcohol abuse. This was a time that was terrifying in many ways, when many, many farms disappeared. And, um, and when I would go out to farms, there were some that the RCMP would not enter, because shots were, you know, taken. And I've been in the presence of people who would have guns to their heads, everything. You know, if you're going to take my farm, you might as well take my life too. Mm. This is my life. Mm. And um, it was a quite an astonishing time that I think was going to change. I, I was disturbed because I felt it would change the way that we were as people. Because rural values define who we are as people here. You know, not climbing over everybody to get your desire, for example, or whatever you want. And a handshake should be your bond and your word should mean something. And, you know, you go to help your neighbors if they're in trouble, but you're independent and mind your own business when they're not. Yeah. And, um, and this fellow was quite courageous, and I'll never, ever forget him. Um, but the... The point of all of this is that through that time, I never had my phone number not listed. 
When I became leader of a political party, I left my phone number in there. When I was lieutenant governor, I did. I have never had it out. And people have always questioned that. And you know, in my lifetime, I've had maybe three calls. Huh. And those people deserve to be heard. Mm-hmm. So I feel very lucky. I'm a very lucky person to have had that chance to be around so many good people. And I always felt that I wasn't going to let a handful define everybody else. Well, I would argue you being lucky because when I think of your journey so far, you have given so much of yourself that the least that people could do is give back by being there for you. I mean, it's, I don't know if that's luck as much as it's... Well, I, th- I think kindness is extremely important. You know, like, wh- why would one see an individual in winter walking home in the snow as a senior carrying groceries without stopping and giving them a ride. Like, mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. I don't get it, <laughs> you know? And there are so many, many different things that one can do as a matter of existing in a community that can make a difference, you know? And I don't, like, uh, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't had a lot of loneliness in my life because I think a lot of choices that I've made result in people thinking, well, you know, she's too busy or she's whatever. So, you know, there's been a lot. But in terms of people being kind in the moment or a generosity of spirit, I've seen the best in people over and over again. And it's been great. But you get back exactly what you put out there and that's how you move mm-hmm. through life so yeah it stands to reason that that's what you would attract in your life uh just jumping back a bit the clinical psychologist journey how what brought you to thinking that that was something you wanted to pursue well i went into the education of exceptional children First, I got my uh, degree in that. What I loved about it is Dr. John McLeod had set up a department that you couldn't even take undergraduate classes if you didn't qualify for graduate school. And so a standard was set. And they were tremendously fine, fine um, programs. Um, I, It's interesting because... The one job I had when I was still hadn't finished school, high school, was I taught swimming. And I ended up traveling to a little lake south of Swift Current called Lake Pelche, where all these farm kids would get into this lake that sometimes had algae, sometimes did not, uh, waves and everything. They never complained. Cold, cold water. And then I'd come back and teach in the city pool and people would complain that it wasn't warm enough 
even though it was a heated pool. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I thought, hmm, okay. Now, one of the things that I learned there is there were uh, some children with Down syndrome that nobody wanted to teach. Mm. And I, I found out that this was just the most joyous experience. Mm-hmm. So when I went back to school and finished high school, I thought, you know, I'd like to go into the education of exceptional children because I think it would offer up some marvelous experiences. And so I went uh, and I worked with the deaf initially and then with uh, children with specific learning disabilities. Um, And I set up self-contained classrooms in Saskatoon, which had never taken place before, set up the Learning Assistance Centre for the Catholic school system, set up a program for chronically truant adolescents. In between those things, I would go back and teach at university. We would come up with a model or theory, and then I'd go out and prove it, you know, by actually teaching. So uh, I had a wealth of um, experiences that were quite wonderful. But one that wasn't was when I was faced with, uh, at the time, my partner and I had been living together for a number of years. Um, it was not a good experience. My marriage was not a good experience. I have no desire to be married anymore. And um, uh, so we lived together, and he was in a very prominent position at the university, and it was a non-issue. We entertained numbers of people uh, because of his work primarily, and I went about my job to set up this classroom in the basement of a church hall and have um, uh, these kids that I found, the only criterion being they had to be Catholic, who weren't in school. So I took them and and I created this program where the arts was singularly important, by the way. Uh, And um, what was fascinating to me was about two years in or one year in, I can't recall, I got a call from the director of education who called me to his office along with my partner. He knew us both well. And he said, listen, um, we've had a support staff, one of the secretaries in a Catholic high school. She's been uh, fired because of living common law. And so we need for Bob to move next door or have a different mailing address or to do whatever because she's taking us to court. And I said, are you kidding me? I mean, I can name three principals now that I know who are doing very untoward behavior. I know of people, you know, like, what are you saying? Be dishonest and not live the life we're leading even though you've been to our home, you know? And that changed me Mm. forever. Uh, I made a decision that I would leave teaching, which I loved and I was very good at, and that I would go into clinical psychology, be able to hang up my plaque, my name, if you will, and no one would ever have to be my boss again. Hmm. Yeah. There are more details to that than I'd care to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
You have no idea, but... Um, so one thing I love about you is you've never not spoken your mind, but you've also <laughs> known when to stop. <laughs> yep. It was, uh, it was shocking to me that there could be such judgment over nothing when there were behaviors that were truly despicable that everybody knew about, and they did nothing. So... You know, it, it, was, uh, it was one more lesson, and that made me very determined. I want to tell you yes. about these young people I got off the streets who had nothing in their lives that would enrich them and let them know what was in the world. And there were different parts to this. I... Uh, I knew that they needed a Shakespeare component for high school, and I thought simply teaching a Shakespeare play uh, would not be something that they would be all that enthusiastic about. <laughs> yeah. So I chose the play that Greystone Theatre was going to put on. And uh, there were the fabulous... Uh, family at that point, the Wright family. Ah, yes. John Wright, Susan Wright, and um, um, why can't I remember the other one? Anyway, um, I took them to the rehearsal. I took everybody to the rehearsal to watch this production. And then we all went back and watched opening night. And that was how we made it through the Shakespeare component. Um, then the now head of the drama department, Dwayne Brenna, was doing a play right before that called Creeps about uh, people with cerebral palsy. Mm. And I knew that if there was a way of engaging these young people, it would be in their being able to relate to being an outsider. And that production was very, very powerful. You know, he was trying to smoke a cigarette on stage and his arm was going all over him. After that was done, he came to our class in the basement of the church hall on 20th Street. And when they were going to take a cigarette break, they said, well, come out and have one with us. And he said, well, I don't smoke. That was the thing that struck them almost more than anything. Huh. And that was the precursor to being able to get them to engage in Shakespeare. Now, there were lots of things we did, but when I finally said to them, you know, there is an opera coming to Saskatoon. The only deal was if one of us wouldn't go, none of us would go, okay? And I said, uh, what do you think? And this young guy who was at Kilburn Hall most of the time, he, which is the incarcerated young people, mm -hmm. he said, well, we've gone to everything else and it's been okay, you know, which was quite a vote of confidence. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I, would, I brought in a recording and I played it and we talked about the storyline and everything. And then we went to what is now TCU Place and watched it. Well, for people who don't think that the arts are transformative. Those experiences 
changed those young people. There was one man, well, he's now a man, who started a program that's going to this very day for young people who are disenfranchised. And I could never figure out why he was there before me every day until I found out he was sleeping in the stairwell every night. And he's turned out to be a remarkable person who's transformed thousands of young people in this city. How anyway. long did you practice as a clinical psychologist? Oh, quite a while. I mean, I, I had a practice at the Saskatoon Mental Health Clinic the whole time I was teaching at university. I, I taught um, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. I did research at the Center for Agricultural Medicine on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I did therapy at mm -hmm. night a lot of the time. And uh, at the Saskatoon Mental Health Clinic, I did a lot of the supervision of doctoral students. And uh, I one part of my practice that was significant is I did a lot of therapy with therapists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it was very gratifying. Um, it, was, it was a good time mm. in my life. I felt very, very privileged, as I always have when people will share their story with me. Mm -hmm. um, I always feel that by the time someone shows up for therapy, they've already done one of the most important things in their right. lives. They got there. They got there. Yeah. So they've acknowledged already that they need help. And then they're the ones that do the work. You know, you're simply there to guide. I've never taken credit for anybody's magnificent gains. And there have been many, many people who and changed their lives. You took your practice to the farming communities as well? Well, I did. When I was in Toronto doing my internship at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, mm -hmm. I had a real eye-opening experience with a, a man who was renowned in Canada for doing group therapy. We, were, we had all these different types of therapy that we were supposed to do. And he said, uh, you know, you can't make a lot of money as a psychologist. So come along and I'll show you how you can make some money. And I was kind of disgusted, but I thought, what the hell? And I, I went to a workshop that he gave for one of the lending institutions on Bay Street. I was sickened by what I saw. It was teaching people how, in the banking institution, how to create a manipulative situation with superiors, inferiors, and the public at large. And I knew that at exactly the same time things were happening in Saskatchewan, that a number of the managers of banks were taking early retirement or being taken out of rural Saskatchewan because they were key, key people. You know, like the the bankers in Swift Current were key members of our society there. Mm -hmm. They were very respected people, and they were close to the community. And yet, when banking got involved in agriculture to capitalize on inflation in the 1970s, they were responsible for saying to people, oh, you need a quarter section of land? We can finance you for a half section. Okay. You need 100 head of cattle, we can finance you for 200 head of cattle. You know, because 
agriculture in the 70s was was as much of an aberration as the dirty 30s were the other direction. Mm -hmm. You know, everything went up. Um, everything was up. Oil and gas, potash, you know, grains and oil seeds, the whole kit and caboodle, hey? And when uh, the end of the 70s came in the early 80s, there was 20 to 22% interest rates. Everybody abandoned farmers, everybody. Colleges of agriculture, you know, you, you name it. They all were, in my view, culpable. Because in the 70s, they said to farmers, expand, expand, expand. And what does that leave you with? Fewer farmers, right. okay, and no communities. And, uh, and people did. They went out and they became much less concerned about everybody in their area. And they expanded. And by the time everything fell with drought, massive drought around the world, um, they were left holding the bag, and it was serious. So people lost everything. So what I knew from being in Toronto was what was happening. And in Saskatchewan, what became very apparent was a farmer would go in to talk to their banker, and instead of just having their banker there, they'd have one other person there. And that was a technique that they were teaching them in Toronto. That as long as you always outnumber people, it can be intimidating. As you know, I found it extremely offensive. Okay, and I came back here. I was offered a wonderful job in a place that everybody would be champing at the bit in Toronto to have. And I came back here, and I said, you know, I am going to go different places in this province. I went out to Coffee Row at six in the morning and just listened to people. I would set up things in a church hall where there would be, um, I'd put up signs everywhere and say, you know, let's talk about farm stress. Never been called that before, ever. And people would come in and it would always be about their cousin or their brother or their something. But um, by the time I finished doing that, there were 800 people in a Quonset outside of Lloydminster. You know, I mean, it grew and grew and grew as the issue became more and more and more significant. And people say, well, why did you go into public life? Well, I, I had gone to, um, uh, because I was working with Dr. Dossman at the uh, College of Agricultural Medicine, I started to collect data. And it was really troubling. Okay. So at the time, Grant Devine was both the Premier and the Minister of Agriculture for Saskatchewan. I tried to get to meet him, and he wouldn't meet with me. So I went to uh, what is now TCU Place, where he was giving a talk. And when he came down, there was this scrum with all these people. And I walked up and I said, I want to know why I'm having so much difficulty meeting with you. Mm. I'm Dr. Haverstock, and I would love to you know, talk with you about this. So, of course... Right away, he said, oh, well, come over to our Saskatoon cabinet office, and I'll meet with you there. Mm. I went, and I talked with him. I gave him all the information, and nothing happened. So I thought, oh, my God. You know, then the NDP were looking for a new leader, and Roy Romano was the leader. And I went out to a couple of meetings, one in Beggar and one somewhere else, and listened to him. And I talked to him. 
and he wasn't interested. And I, then the leader, leadership of the Liberal Party was on. It had been going on for a couple of months. And I think there were three people vying for that position. And I went to the library at the University of Saskatchewan where they were talking. And I left that, went home, and I cried. Mm. And I just felt that nobody got it, you know? I mean, who, I really believe this. I know it sounds terribly naive and simplistic. But when one looks at Canadians from outside of Canada, they have always seen us as a very fair and just people in the past. I don't believe that's the case now. And I believe that the things that they've admired about us and why our reputation was so heralded was because of our rural roots and how we've been very sort of truthful people, reliable people, extraordinary people who fought in the wars and did so not because they were going to gain anything from it. We're not going to get land. We're not going to get riches. We're not going to get anything. We did it because it was right for king and country, you know? Mm -hmm. And I saw all of that in this, in what was transpiring in rural Canada, you know, that we were under siege. And I just felt that nobody was fighting for it. And I broke down the word agriculture. I said, okay, there's agra, which is the agribusiness of it all that everybody out there talks about. Let them talk about it. I care about the culture part. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to fight for the culture part, mm -hmm. for what defines us as people. And I threw my hat in the ring of the Liberal Party late, after everybody had gone out and got their voters and things to come to the meeting, the nomination meeting. And I still went out and did all my farm stress workshops. I didn't have time to cancel them and didn't want to. Went to that weekend and I got 89% of the votes. Mm -hmm. So that's when I became leader of the Liberal Party. And that went on for how many years? From 1985, or 1989 until uh, late of 1995. Okay, right. There was a massive coup then. Yes, I, I'm going to let you drive that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how far you want to well, get into it. you know it, what? It didn't end well. It didn't end well, but again, uh, when I think of what we were able to accomplish was nothing short of a miraculous achievement, mm -hmm. especially the first group of people who ran for us. I said, listen, we're going to have the best policy manual, the best platform that can be put before people. It's going to be honest, and that's what we're going to run on. So let's bring people together who are knowing they are not going to win. And we can run for all the right reasons because there needs to be a new politic. You know, not this manipulative stuff, not the 
negativity towards others. It's what we will represent. And that's what we did. Those first people, I'd line up against anybody. They came from every single walk of life. They did it knowing they wouldn't win. But I did win. And I went there by myself. And I had no idea why I was treated like a pariah when I was only one person. I didn't realize, I mean, Roy Romano since has said, uh, you know, if we hadn't called the election in 1995 when we did, or, uh, you know, you would have beat us. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> but he's, it, I guess we just started to get steam. But to go to a place and have people that I'd known for 20 years not even say a response to good morning to me was certainly a shock. And I didn't realize I was so hated by the conservatives who were there who blamed me for their loss. Mm. I mean, I guess they thought if there weren't uh, this party that got 23% of the popular vote, they would still be there, which is just ridiculous. They hadn't tabled a budget for two years in their last term terms in office. Um, you know, it was five years since there had been an election and they weren't calling one, so the lieutenant governor gave the what for to the premier. I mean, what part of the province being bankrupt could you not get? <laughs> but, but they didn't. And, um, and they really, really um, did not like what I represented, I guess. But what happened within the Liberal Party? Well, that was the first part. That was 1991's election. Uh -huh. By 1995, uh, you know, what was curious is we had the president of the Liberal Party, the executive director, for those first couple of years, and myself were all women. And there were people in the liberal uh, little gathering there, and the executive and everything, who would say, we can't have this. We can't have this. You know, three women in these positions and everything. I said, well, you know, for a hundred years, it's been <laughs> the other way, and you yeah. can have it that way for yeah. a while. But um, it, was, it was really hard. There were 64 seats then. I mean, they reduced them to 58 over the years. And now it's back up to something or other, which I can't figure out why they did that. But the 64 seats and then my seat, I had to win my seat and go to all these others. And what I said to people was, understand, we have $155,000 on this entire provincial campaign. And we are going to spend $155,000 and not one penny more. So I know we did well because of um, the debates and that sort of thing. But I was really proud that we were equal between urban and rural. And everything about politics then was about pitching people, you know, against each mm -hmm, other. Mm -hmm. uh, rural Saskatchewan was one thing. The cities were another. And just go at her. And uh, while everybody in the media was saying, well, you're an inch deep and a mile wide, I said, this is exactly what I want. 23% of the population between urban and rural, even, that is fantastic as a foundation. 
and we're only a million people, that's what we want, is to come together as a million people. And, um, and then there was somebody who crossed the floor. Um, it was suspected after the fact that he was actually a plant. Uh, he certainly created huge problems for me. And, uh, uh, and then there was a by-election, and the Liberals won that by-election. So, you know, it was an enormously busy time. People have no idea of the, the games that are played. Um, what the NDP did was they had um, several committees that I was assigned to. What they don't tell anybody is that the Public Accounts Committee and the Crown Corporations Committee, and there were two others that I was on, three others that I was on, that these were, in fact, held at exactly the same time, so that no matter what, when they came back in the House, every single day, every day, didn't matter what the topic was, if it was a response to the speech from the Crown, uh, throne speech, the people would get up on the government side and they would say very disparaging thing about things about me or my family. And one of the things they'd say is, she doesn't even show up to the Crown Corporations meeting. Okay. Well, I was always leaving one thing early to go to the other one late. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really, really hard to be that busy um, because I took them all very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an education, you know, like uh, I didn't believe, like there's a committee that meets and it was always in private. Um, this meeting was about um, how much money people would be paid, that sort of thing. It's called the Board of Internal Economy. And I never believed that there should ever be anything that isn't open to the public. Like, why? Uh, and especially something that deals with people's salaries. I said, if we can't make a case for what we should earn, and so what you tr try to do is to manipulate it by introducing different per diems that are ridiculous, and uh, non-taxable income, that's a grant, and a this and a that, just give people a salary they deserve that we can defend and don't try to introduce all these other things. Open up the Board of Internal Economy. Well, that wasn't popular, let me tell you. And so I discovered shortly thereafter, after they were ultimately forced to do it by the media uh, making it so public, that after that, there'd be people who would come up, it's called behind the bar, okay? And they'd say, come behind the bar and we'll talk uh, because we want to talk about this and this and this. So instead of doing it in the Board of Internal Economy, they were doing it in the back of the assembly. Hmm. I'd say, I won't be part of this. Well, then every day people would say, you know, and then there's the member from Greystone who's so sanctimonious, she's this and this and this. I, I just couldn't understand this, you know. Um, in those days, it was a very, very difficult time because there were bells that rung for days on end. There were 
um, you know, it, it was a crazy, crazy time. It seems to me that it is in fact true that honesty and integrity <laughs> well, you know politics. what? I mean, integrity, I believe, unlike a lot of people, that there are today senators who have tremendous integrity. I know it. They've done tremendous work. But is it appreciated? And, 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 and well, I mean... Within the parties. Even, even uh, the House of Commons, uh, a few years ago, uh, people put forward the names of seven, seven senators who had done outstanding work and they wanted them acknowledged on a stamp you know some of them were historical figures and they wouldn't do it you know i mean for politicians they want to be the only game in town they don't even want to be part of a constitutional monarchy in many cases uh, so they don't want a lieutenant governor or governor's governor's general in the country they don't want you know and they certainly wouldn't want a senate if they could be the only game in town so anybody that lives in a um, in countries that are bicameral, they know how important it is uh, to have places where legislation can get reviewed, and especially in this second largest landmass in the world, like Canada, we're never in Saskatchewan going to be represented well in the House of Commons. We're only three percent of the population, so we're only three percent of the folks in there. But representation by region, we should want. If you talk to anybody, do they want to elect more um, people so that they're elected politicians? I'd say no. Why not just do what's right in the first place? Have them all independent. They shouldn't be doing political work in there. I don't care what anybody says. They should be working for us, for our region of the country, and then looking at everything as a whole and making it work. Um, do you know that every few years the United Nations examines the best countries in which to live? And every one of those is a constitutional monarchy. Hmm. They like the separation of head of state mm -hmm. from head of government, from whatever will be commander in chief. And for Canada to have two out of the three that don't vote and don't belong to a political party has served us well for a very, very long time. And I, I, uh, I cringe when I think of how everything is going now. I really do. The coup was pretty public. Uh, I don't think it was much yeah. of a secret within oh, this it, province. Oh, no, it was it was quite public. I mean, what wasn't public were the people who did it and why they did it. But I knew as soon as uh, we elected as many people as we did in 1995 that there were people who wanted my job, and my first speech to the caucus was, I know there are people who want my job, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's important to learn your own first. Gee, why you know? do I feel like you're being whipped for being honest? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I know that I come across as rather harsh or dogmatic or something. I, You know, my life has been really challenging, and I've never wasted much time of it. No one will ever accuse you of being a victim of your circumstance. Right. And I figure you can't be, you can't feel empowered if you're a victim right. or you feel entitled. Right. And I have always felt a real, almost an urgency about 
the just society, you know? Um, I'm going to give you one example. I mean, there's been so much about First Nations. Um, and I can tell you that I've always said, if we can't get this right in Saskatchewan, there's no hope for the Middle East. There's no hope for the world, really. If we can't reconcile what has been wrongs. And um, I mean, I, uh, I've also, by the way, given remarks to First Nations and others about a sense of empowerment and how, how does one break cycles of, uh, of different things. But it is so strange to me that this place, this 652,000 square kilometers, you know, where we have so few people, that we can't make this the unique example in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I lament what I didn't get a chance to do. Um, I don't think there was much chance. Um, there are articles, the first interview I ever gave for SAS Business Magazine as the leader of the Liberal Party in 1989. I said, you know, if this party does well, because it was at 4% of the polls when I took over, um, you know, a man's going to want this job. You know, as soon as it gets healthy, a man's going to want this job. It's not like it's rocket science. You have to understand that I've always been part of even you know, volunteer boards of directors where I, as a woman, could say something around the table and it wasn't acknowledged, and then five minutes later a man would save it and oh. everybody would be crawling all over the place with Lee. So, you know, this isn't new to me. And so what? I am still a woman born in this country in a time when... We are so many rungs up the ladder relative to other women in the world. We should just the hell get on with it because you can't waste your time on people who are not there yet. There are other ways of being able to bring um, equality and excitement of men, of of great talent and women of great talent coming together and making it happen, you know? So there's this determined spirit mm -hmm. that isn't crushed after the coup. And what happens? Like the eve of the turn of the century, the phone rings and you get noticed that, <laughs> yeah. that, you're, no, that you're being asked to be lieutenant governor of Saskatchewan? Well, uh, you know, I did sit as an independent from 1995 till 1999. Uh -huh. And uh, I think in some ways... You know how you think uh, certain events happen and they can be tragic in the moment, but that they're preparing you for something truly wonderful. Hence the expression that which, that which does not kill us makes us strong. Yeah, and, and that's what I felt happened. You see, when I was an independent, I didn't belong anywhere, really. I just did the job to the best of my ability. And then when it was over, I did a 
short stint as a radio talk show host on CFQC, and that's when I got the call from Mr. Chrétien. And, you know, being an independent, I don't think anybody viewed me as anything anymore. Mm. Mm. And as lieutenant governor, you need to not vote and not belong to a political party. And that was easy for me because they took my membership away from the Liberal Party. And so I wouldn't seek the leadership again. I guess they thought I was going to beat whoever ran. And uh, so it was just a tremendous gift. What was that? What did you feel like when you got that call? A bit overwhelmed. I so wanted to do well in that office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought, how weird that my friends and and acquaintances will have to not call me by my name. But I feel that protocol and protection of an office are very, very important. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I studied the constitutional responsibilities of prerogative powers and everything. And I know in my heart that most people see that as a ceremonial role. They don't realize that when Sylvia Fedoric was lieutenant governor, Mm -hmm. she played the pivotal role in having the divine government call the election because she wouldn't sign orders in council anymore. Okay. Uh, or, no, not orders in council. She wouldn't sign, um, uh, it was to do with uh, uh, money, okay? They couldn't pay their bills unless she signed because they wouldn't call, they wouldn't have a budget. And she said, I won't do this anymore. And five years is up, call an election. That's the job of a lieutenant governor is to protect democracy for the people, you know? And I, I felt, oh, Wow. What a huge responsibility. And I'm going to honor this as far as I can. And I did. And, you know, people are so sweet because they'll come up to me and call me your honor. And I'll say, well, I'm not your honor anymore. Well, to us, you're her honor. I'll say, well, no. When I was there, um, it wasn't about me. It was about the office. Mm -hmm. And now I'm no longer there. So I want you to call me Linda because that's me, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, uh, I look back and I think, oh my, you know, five royal visits in six and a half years. And to honor the people that I did, to pay them the respect that they were due. You know, with the Saskatchewan Order of Merit, the highest civilian honor we can give our people, the Volunteer Medal, the Centennial Medal, um, it was just a thing of wonder. And every one of them were the same for one reason. None of them felt they deserved it. Mm -hmm. Isn't that that something? It's the best. I know. Uh, And, you know... I was so happy to create the Lieutenant Governor's celebration of the arts pin. Because mm-hmm. it was just an area where I felt people were left out. So, And, you know, I can confirm that you did carry that position mm-hmm. with all the grace and poise and dignity that it deserves. Because just traveling the province last year doing this mm-hmm. podcast, I would 
show up at, you know, the Esterhazy flour mill. And there's yes. your photo on the wall as it was given its, um, its, uh, its historical designation. Mm-hmm. And without exception, people just commented on how well loved you were. Oh, well, that's so sweet. Thank you very much. And your mark is everywhere. I would see your photo <laughs> hanging everywhere I went, somewhere in a museum, wherever I went. There you were. I mean, you were boots on the ground present, yeah. both in people's well, lives and hearts. I can tell you it's a small but mighty office. Mm-hmm. I don't think people anywhere get more bang for their buck than they do from the royal family. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember before the Queen Mother died, we went to her 100th birthday, and we were at the Trooping of the Color, and, um, and one of her fabulous parties. Um, this woman, when she was 100, she would only be patron if she would actively be involved with them. That's the criterion. Can you actively, can you do an event for them every year? Can you do whatever? They, have, they are patrons, all of them, of five, 600 organizations. Think of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an astonishing thing that they do in terms of making people feel like they do something of value I mean, you think of Prince Charles with this book that he wrote on harmony mm-hmm. and what he's done for organic agriculture and for architecture and for, you know, for years and years they painted him out to be some flake. And now the world's caught up with him where he says, we should monetize it all. Give, if you need to know, give a price tag to clean air, you know. Give a price tag. Put a price on clean water for soil, you know, enriched soil. Give it a price so that we can at least be looking at economy in the right way. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy is so amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just felt it was surreal in many ways. But I, you know, I can honestly say there was never one event, not one, where I went in there and I didn't feel lucky to be there, you know? That's interesting. Uh, This is incredibly self-indulgent on my part, but I toured uh, a concert that I produced through OSAC, and Mm -hmm. one of the stops was in the Swift Current. And you flew in with your aid, (laughs) and there you were, and... I couldn't have, normally I would have been proud that I could have sold the show as well as I did, but I was just so proud to see you sitting there for Mm -hmm. you. It was just, when I think of all the, you know, the milestones in my own career, those moments when you showed up made me feel so proud for you and what, knowing your story. um, Well, thank you. That you were there. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I think I don't. I, I think I can speak for everybody that ha- your presence meant a great deal um, when you came to a community. Being there meant a great deal to people. And you continued to champion the cause of this province when you moved into the position of president and CEO of well, I, Saskatchewan. <laughs> I was so um, fortunate to get that job. It was, uh, a, a, you know, it was a full competition for that job. Mm-hmm. And I just was grateful that they would take a risk 
on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how we could create the best team possible. And so for the first year, I really needed to examine what was there and determine that there were some people there who were in completely the wrong jobs Mm. and they needed to be somewhere else. And I'm glad I took that time because we ended up doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. And to get people who had been... um, Um, used to positional-based bargaining, to have them lead the way to go into interest-based bargaining, uh, you know, as a way of of, um, approaching union issues. Uh, We did many, many things, of which I'm incredibly proud. The the other thing is that I had president's task teams, um, and... I was so grateful. I made a list of 54 people who were um, from every field, but mostly you know, preeminent business people, both inside and outside the province. And I said, you know, what we need to do is have real guidance in making this the best that it can be. And I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would get those 54 people, and I got 53. Mm. And the 54th person said, I just simply can't do this because of my time, but I've talked to Jim Hobson from the Riders, and he will be there in my place. (laughs) (laughs) And he turned out to be pretty darn fine. So we had, uh, it was an amazing, amazing thing to have that input. And um, we had the first summit on tourism that Saskatchewan's ever had, um, which was exciting. And they you know, collectively having people from around the province define what were the key areas. So we accomplished a lot. It was very disappointing for me that um, going to a, um, a Crown Corporation, that I wasn't convinced that uh, this was the way to go, but it was the way the province wanted it, um, which I understood that they harbored guilt feelings from those conservative days. I just didn't realize how deeply they ran. And they now have a different way of doing things, and that's okay. I just don't believe that people in tourism should be writing speeches for ministers instead of dealing with tourism. How do you really feel? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could tell you far more details than than the world would ever know, but everybody's love one for the premier. I'm sure that they'd Uh, be rather shocked. Right. I'll be handy with the edit button. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What haven't you done? Here you sit in your charming home, very happy to have retired from public life. What haven't you done? What's on the bucket list? Well, I can tell you that the job that I had after Tourism Saskatchewan was very, very challenging, but really, really meaningful. And that was to work for RMD Engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm not an engineer, but what do I care? Um, I met a man who said, someday we're going to work together. He owns an engineering company. 
finds out that I've pretty much been fired off on tourism Saskatchewan after five years. So he drives to Regina and says, this is our chance. Come and work for me because you can make happen what we've tried to make happen for the last couple of years. And I know you can make this happen. And what it was, was to try to bring together a privately owned company with a public um, enterprise with a nonprofit and to create for people who are completely marginalized, severely disabled people, a place where they could go at limited cost and receive not only the supervision of extremely skilled physiotherapists, but to use equipment that I brought in from places like Finland, from all over the world, pieces of equipment that they could need. And to find out if, in fact, whether it was an acquired brain injury, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, um, um, people with spinal cord injuries, if these people could become healthier on several measures, including socially. And we proved it. This pilot project finally got up and running, and every single thing was measured. Um, and it was some miracles were seen. It was an amazing thing. Because people forget that when you become disabled, you usually become the poorest of the poor. And you're not able to have ongoing therapy that can help you retain what little you had and your body physiologically that has nothing to do with your affliction becomes less and less well. Uh, and what we proved is that there were people who became substantially better, substantially healthier, substantially happier. And, um, and that was very, very gratifying. Here's a question for you, <laughs> not to put you on the spot. <laughs> if you could have dinner with a Canadian, dead or alive, who might that be? I know uh, among the top five, give me a name of someone you, that you've always... Well, if I hadn't already had lunch and dinner with, you know, Pierre Trudeau, um, yeah. and people like that, he would be there. Uh -huh. um, I know this sounds a bit odd, uh -huh. but I've always cared a lot about the topic of ethics. And I've given speeches on the topic of ethics and the um, resilience we have to have, the reflecting we have to do on what I call ethical slippage. You know, when do you, what do you have to do to start letting go of your ethics, okay? There's a woman who was the Minister of Health in Canada called Monique Bejean. And she did a most remarkable thing. And I would like to talk to her about what she did. When there was HIV 
um, that was not nipped in the bud by um, Canadian Blood Services. I forget what it was called before that. Um, the provinces across the piece washed their hands of people who became HIV positive through blood transfusions. And Monique Beijing stood up and said, I was the Minister of Health then, and I will take full responsibility. I thought that was a brave thing to do. She could have been, you know, sued, she could have been whatever. But she was someone who took a position that was an ethical position and did it for other people because they needed somebody, you know, the hemophiliacs and the everybody to say, why doesn't, and they spent years saying, why doesn't anybody care, you know? And she cared. Um, I'd talked to her about that. I thought it was a beautiful thing to do. Very brave. I feel right now like the luckiest person on the planet. Really? I could sit here and talk to you forever, and I've known you forever, <laughs> and we've had great times, and I just think you're, aside from all of your accomplishments, you're just a spectacular person and a Gosh. fine representative of this province. In fact, yeah. baby, if I'm the bottom... You're, you're the top. <laughs> <laughs> no, you are. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. You're the best. Well, thank you. Thanks for kicking off season two of oh, this Oh, you're series. more than welcome. Boy. It, it's such a pleasure. I'm mm -hmm. so happy to see you doing this. What a great, great gig. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created and hosted by Kevin Power for Sass Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lottery's Trust Fund for Sport, Culture, and Recreation. For more information, visit iHeartCulture.ca and SaskCulture.ca. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There's no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time... <laughs> <laughs>